Chapter 20 of A History of Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jerry Ratka. A History of Astronomy by Walter W. Bryant. Chapter 20 The Moon. The Moon, though nearer the Earth than any other celestial body, and regarded as our own peculiar property, has from time to time suffered from a strange lack of interest among astronomers. Even Herschel did practically nothing in that direction, though very little else escaped him. We have noticed the progress of the theory, and now come to observation. As regards the position of the moon, it has for a very long time been considered the peculiar prerogative of the Royal Observatory at Greenwich to observe the moon on every possible day. The long series thus accumulated from 1750 or thereabouts, providing a rich store of material for the completion, or at any rate, improvement of the lunar theory. As it is impossible in general to observe the moon on the meridian at Greenwich within three hours of noon, on account of its relative faintness against the bright sunlit sky, it has been for more than half a century the practice to observe it off the meridian with an alt-azimuth for all possible days, when the meridian instrument could not, for the above reason, be used and also on sufficient days, often the whole month, when both instruments were available. For the sake of comparing the two, and determining or eliminating systematic error, which was expected to be larger in the case of the alt-azimuth on account of its necessarily less stability, we have noted the new universal transit circle, with which it has been possible still further to reduce this error, though its use in fixed azimuths somewhat lessens the number of observations. One other recent modification remains. The observations of the limb of the moon, whether seen against a bright sky, a dark sky, or an intermediate twilight sky, are by necessity compared for fundamental purposes with observations of stars, which are of a distinctly different character. There will be a varying error due to irradiation or diffraction, according to the brightness of the sky, and in general a personal error differing from that which is common to the star observations of the same observer, and which is eliminated in the process of reduction. It follows, then, that observations before and after sunset will show a discordance, and observations before and after full moon will show a separate discordance, according to the limb which is observed, so that in the course of a month a peculiar set of discordances between observation and ephemeris is found, partly due to the imperfections of the ephemeris, but partly also to the causes just mentioned. To render the observations more comparable, it has been proposed to observe instead of the limb a small crater near the apparent center of the moon as seen from the earth, and at Greenwich, and the Cape, and elsewhere. This has been tried, the crater chosen being known as Mosting A, for a reason which will appear. The moon's librations in latitude and longitude, since only in the mean is its position relative to the earth invariable, and even then only to the center of the earth, cause the position of Mosting A to vary with respect to the apparent center but this is allowed for by a special ephemeris given in the Berliner Jahrbuch. It must be admitted that there are considerable drawbacks to the method. To make observations of the crater comparable with previous observations of the limb, it is necessary to observe both at the same transit, which is liable to interfere with the consistency and accuracy of both observations, as they must be more or less hurried. Again, the illumination of even a central crater is not constant. It cannot be seen at all in the first or last quarter, and is not always easy to identify, while on some cloudy nights, when a partial transit of the limb is an easy matter, that of the crater is impossible. In any case, the crater is not stellar in appearance, so that the error, whose elimination is sought, could not under the very best conditions be entirely abolished, though it might be reduced. 
Under average conditions, even this is not probable. Mention of Mosting A brings us to what is called selenography, or the science of charting the moon. The father of this science was Schroeder, whom Miss Clerk has called the Herschel of Germany. Before his time, Hevelius, Cassini, and others had noted some of the salient features of the moon, but until near the end of the 18th century, when Schroeder settled at Lilienthal and began his lunar and planetary studies, no exhaustive topography with a view to accounting for the appearance of the moon or detecting possible changes had been attempted. Schroeder discovered the first rill on the lunar surface in 1787. About a thousand are now charted. These rills are like barren ravines, but it is doubtful whether they are simply dried-up watercourses or cracks produced in cooling. In 1830, Beer and Madler began their trigonometrical survey of the lunar surface. Their chart was published in four parts, from 1834 to 1836. Before that, Lorman had commenced one in 25 sections, on the scale of one meter to a lunar diameter. But having published four sections, his sight failed, and his drawings were taken in hand by Dr. Schmidt, who became director of the observatory at Athens, and after almost monopolizing lunar cartography for many years, published a complete atlas founded on Lorman's in 1878. The scale was twice as great as Lorman's, two meters to a diameter, and more than 30,000 craters are marked on it. Schroeder had imagined the possibility of lunar inhabitants, selenites, and so as a matter of fact had Herschel and others. Beer and Madler definitely announced that no vestige of change was shown anywhere, and that the moon was dead. Nearly 30 years later, Schmidt announced in 1866 that the crater Linnae had disappeared, or so greatly changed in appearance to be hardly recognizable. Interest in the lunar surface at once revived, and Schmidt no longer had the field to himself, as had been the case since the announcement of Beer and Madler. It is curious that modern observations of Linnae agree with those of Schroeder, while those of Lorman, Madler, and early ones of Schmidt made it a much larger and more important crater. But though the continually varying incidence of light on lunar landscapes may in certain cases cause strange apparent changes, it is not safe to assume that these careful observers were mistaken, especially as this is not a solitary instance. A similar change on the floor of the walled plain, Plato, has been noted, and also a new crater, Hygienus N, announced. It is considered by W. H. Pickering, whose great work on the moon, from photographs taken principally at Arequipa, is one of the most complete contributions to any branch of astronomy that the new century has yet produced, that the lunar volcanoes are not quite, though very nearly, extinct, and that these changes are real. It can hardly be regarded as certain, but it is a reasonable explanation, if the facts are admitted. Other works on the chartography of the moon have been produced in the intervals between those referred to. Naismith and Carpenter published in 1876 an atlas which has recently seen a new edition, and Neeson, Neville, now director of the Natal Observatory, Durban, brought out in 1876 his great work on the moon with a revised map founded on Beer and Madler with thousands of additional objects. Photography of the moon was first systematized at Lick Observatory in 1890, another series being commenced at Paris in 1894. Professor Wynick of Prague has studied the Lick photographs, and more recently in England, S.A. Saunders, one of the secretaries of the Royal Astronomical Society, has taken up the work of measurement of Paris photographs with a view to a complete selenographic index and atlas, in which, however, he finds great difficulty owing to the alarming want of uniformity in lunar nomenclature. We have referred to Mosting A and Hyginus N, but it must suffice on this subject to indicate that names, 
ergo, of astronomers as Tycho, Copernicus, have been assigned to conspicuous craters, that other names have been given to larger regions, such as the Walled Plains, Plato and others, and that still larger ones, Maria, are indicated as Mare Nubium or Mare Serenitatis, and that in the case of a named district, with small craters, these are given the district name with a suffix, as Mosting A, Hyginus N, and others. It is in the order followed in the suffixes that some inconsistencies occur, while other cases are found of craterlets being assigned the wrong regions, or possibly to more than one, the borders not being very exactly assigned. It is to be hoped that the interest recently shown in this subject will be maintained until a uniform system is consistently followed. Schroeder suspected a lunar atmosphere about 29 times thinner than our own, but Bessel, from observations of the suddenness with which stars disappear behind the moon, concluded that the lunar atmosphere, if any, did not refract to any sensible extent. Various estimates of the tenuity admissible under such conditions have been given, Sir John Herschel's limit being 1 1,980th of that of the Earth, a very different figure from Schroeder's 1 29th. It was noticed, however, that the diameter of the moon, as deduced from occultation, was less than that obtained by direct measurement. Airy, from Greenwich observations, made the difference amount to four seconds of arc. If this could be attributed to refraction, the effect could be produced by a lunar atmosphere of Herschel's suggested tenuity, but it is not necessary to assume refraction to account for the difference. It is known that when the moon's limb appears best defined for purposes of measurement, it is apparently increased by irradiation, so that the best direct measures are too large. On the other hand, occultations will often, and therefore in the mean, give a smaller diameter, as the irregularities in the moon's limb are considerable, and any depression at the point where an occultation takes place has its full effect on the apparent occultation diameter, while it has none on the direct measure, and in the complementary case of a slight protuberance on the limb, both observations are affected so that from this cause also the occultation diameter would appear the smaller. What is called the eclipse diameter, on which depends the magnitude and duration of a total solar eclipse, is smaller still, most likely because every depression in the limb has its effect in letting sunlight pass, and so slightly shortening the duration of totality. This difference is readily illustrated by likening the apparent disk of the moon to a solid toothed wheel the directly measured diameter being rather greater than that of the circle circumscribed around the teeth, the eclipse diameter that of the circle inscribed within the depressions between the teeth, and the occultation diameter between the two, as in general at least some portion of a tooth would be in the path of the star. It is obvious that most occultations take place under conditions which render it difficult, if not impossible, to measure the diameter at all. For only in the case of very bright stars is accurate observation possible at the bright limb, so that either the time of disappearance or of reappearance is liable to error, according as the moon is waning or waxing. On this account, about twenty years ago, it was suggested that advantage should be taken of lunar eclipses for this purpose, for, during an eclipse, not only are both limbs dark, so that complete observations are possible under good conditions, but also the absence of bright moonlight greatly increases the number of stars whose occultation can be observed with accuracy. And there is in general another slight advantage in that the eclipsed limb is more often visible than the unilluminated limb. Hence, at more than one total eclipse, lists of faint stars liable to occultation during the eclipse have been prepared and circulated among observatories likely to cooperate, with an ephemeris of the times of disappearance and reappearance.
In a few instances, what are called anomalous occultations have been observed, when stars have either seemed to disappear gradually or to have been visible through the moon's edge. These cases have been cited as evidence of a lunar atmosphere, but a more probable explanation is that in some cases, the star has been visible through a depression in the moon's limb, even after possibly disappearing momentarily behind a mountain, and that in other cases the star is really double, and one component has vanished before the other. Advantage has also been taken of lunar eclipses to test the question whether the moon radiates heat on its own account besides reflecting it from the sun. Evidence goes to show that a sensitive thermal pile of selenium cells exposed to the rays of the moon before and during an eclipse shows a diminution of heat received, not at the commencement of the eclipse, but rather later. This is, however, not conclusive, as it might easily be explained by the slight storage of sun heat at the surface of the moon, which would not dissipate entirely for a short time after the sun's rays were withdrawn, just as the filament of an incandescent electric light glows faintly for a fraction of a second after the current is cut off. This particular branch of lunar investigation is under the special care of the Earl of Ross, whose father built the great Parsonstown reflector of six feet aperture, which is still the largest in the world, though its reflecting efficiency is much impaired by deterioration of the mirror. The evidence of the spectroscope shows that the light of the moon is simply reflected sunlight, the only difference being the faintness of the spectrum. By Huggins, some 40 years ago, the spectrum of a star approaching occultation was watched to see if any differential absorption by a lunar atmosphere could be observed, but the whole range of lines vanished simultaneously. End of chapter 20